Welcome to the Whole Council Podcast. I'm John Snyder. And with me this week, you can see, is Teddy James. Good to have you, Teddy. Hey. Teddy, if you don't know of Teddy, Teddy is normally the guy behind the cameras where he would prefer to stay. But I uh, hogtied him and got him to agree to help me with um, a special podcast today where we are going to be interviewing Greg Jones. Uh, Teddy's going to be interviewing him. Greg Jones is a Brit who has escaped to the sunny beaches of Florida, which we said- We're pretty jealous of right now. Yeah, it would be good right now because Mississippi has just come out of a week of ice storm. So uh, that's pretty rare for us. Uh, Greg Jones uh, is the president of MLJ Trust, Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. You can find that online, mljtrust.org. And it is uh, the most complete uh, resource for Lloyd-Jones sermons. And they're arranged, you know, topically, they're arranged biblically. Um, It's a wonderful resource that if you have not benefited from it, you should go there. It is uh, a ministry that we highly recommend uh, making these available across the world has great potential in the kingdom. And if you want to support that ministry financially, I'm sure they would really appreciate that. Yeah, before you go further, so, and you'll hear about this as I interview Greg later, but there's also an app and a YouTube channel, and we're going to have links to all of that in the description. Yeah, yeah, great. So great place, uh, something that Teddy and I both have uh, used in our own lives, individually and uh, ministerially often. Yeah, absolutely. So, John, let me ask you something, because like you just said, we have both benefited and countless others have benefited from Lloyd-Jones's ministry some 40 years after his death. What is it about him that gives such a timeless quality? Yeah, Lloyd-Jones, if you're not familiar with Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones was actually born in 1899, which to me sounds like a million years ago. But 1899, died in 1981 after um, uh, a bout with cancer. Um, he was, uh, a Welshman, not an Englishman, even though he does sound like the quintessential English butler to an American ear. I remember recommending Lloyd-Jones to, um, a pastor in the South. He was a member of our church, uh, and he, he listened to him and then he ended up reading him. And he said he, he benefited more from reading because he said, I just could not get past the British like Butler sound and, you know, so if that catches you up, you can always read. Uh, He was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, the doctor is not a theological doctor. He didn't have a PhD in theology, but rather he was trained as a medical physician and was very successful as a young man, uh, was in a couple of honored positions Uh, Assistant to the Queen's Physician, I think is what the official title was. That was, uh, uh, you know, a demonstration of his um, diligence and his skill. And that physician-like mind showed up in his ministry. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, very, very much uh, a logical thinker, but also a very diagnostic thinker in dealing with the problems of humanity at large or in dealing with people one at a time. When people at the church... Uh, There in London, his second pastorate, his first pastorate was 10 years in a small Welsh town, Aberavon. Uh, I think Sandfields is the name of the church. Uh, And then he went from Wales to London and pastored there for about 30 years in Westminster Chapel, not Westminster Cathedral, 
that's an Anglican at Westminster Chapel. And it was, uh, it's, it's still there. Uh, the building is still there. The church is uh, I, sadly very changed after his uh, resigning. Um, but Lloyd-Jones exercised there such an extraordinary ministry in the sense that it, it kind of became the pulpit for Western careful evangelicalism. And his influence in the UK really was that uh, over evangelicals in the UK in, in, in the middle of the 20th century, he kind of became uh, the father, uh, you know, the, the guide of serious-minded, especially young people who were converted in the 50s. Uh, they called them, the, if they were men who went into the ministry, uh, they have been nicknamed the, the 50s men. Um, so many college-age, university-age young men converted, hearing Lloyd-Jones preach, influenced by the emphases that he maintained throughout his Christian life and ministry, uh, an experiential uh, Calvinism, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, very much influenced by the Puritans, but also by the 18th century Great Awakening and uh, on their side of the pond, evangelical revival men, uh, George Whitfield over there, Jonathan Edwards here. So with the wedding of, of a serious focus on doctrine with a very warm application, a very aggressive um, you know, application of those truths to the soul, Lloyd-Jones's ministry uh, spanning those 40 years in total I think has a, a timeless quality that that makes his books and his sermons um, very beneficial even today. Yeah, and you now John, for you personally, we get to see kind of the impacts and the ripples of Lloyd Jones's ministry. You know, I, I personally I feel very removed from them, right? But you got to see people and meet people in your time in Wales um, who had firsthand exposure to Lloyd Jones. Yeah, from 96 to 99, my wife and I, and at that time, our two children, we lived in Cardiff, Wales. And uh, that was, um, we, we attended a church called the Heath Evangelical Church, pastored at that time by um, Vernon Hyam, who's passed away. Vernon Hyam was uh, the best friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones and vice versa. In the, those last decades of his life, they were both Welshmen, very proud to be Welshmen. Um, Lloyd-Jones often, therefore, spent the weekend over in Cardiff and would preach at the Heath Evangelical Church. And when he came, then he would be hosted by families in the church. He would spend the evening, you know, spend the night with the pastor and his wife. So we got to, you know, I arrived there in 96, having read Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, and some of his uh, articles at, uh, you know, the Westminster or the Puritan Conference. Uh, and when I got there, I remember sitting at a table with a group of men. Uh, it, was a, it was a church family retreat uh, or camp, family camp. So all the men were up a little early and, um, you know, like men letting moms chase the little ones all around the campus. And the men were there having tea or coffee, you know, at 7.30 in the morning. And they broke into theological discussions. It was a very encouraging church, the Heath Evangelical Church. I, I will never be able to repay them for how the Lord used them in, uh, in my family's life. But I remember sitting with the men and they were discussing a, 
something that I think is a bit obscure. All right, they were discussing, was it right to listen to classical music? And I thought, you know, if we're going to ask, was it is it right to listen to Black Sabbath versus, you know, uh, you know, whoever Get was the Christian group? Yeah, yeah. yeah, like okay, but so, but no, no, they weren't talking about that. They, they, you know, what about Bach? Well, they said Bach, yes, Bach. Bach, he's he he, you know, he was a he at least was a God fearing man. But Beethoven, oh, no, I don't know about Beethoven. And I I just sat there quietly. I was the new guy, you know, I had just arrived. And I, I just kept thinking, I cannot believe, I, you know, I feel like I'm on television somewhere. Somebody's got a camera pointed at me like, this is a joke. We can't be having a, a discussion on the philosophy of Bach versus Beethoven and the moral correctness of listening to them. And, and so guys were going back and forth and I just was kind of in disbelief. And one man chimed in and said, well, the doctor said, and he gave what uh, the doctor said about Bach or Beethoven or whatever. And basically he said, you know, uh, you, uh, you can listen to these classical musicians and what their lives were really doesn't influence, you know, how we're listening to that music. And so, you know, you don't have to be persnickety and whatever benefits a man's soul, let him do that. Well, anyway, whenever they quoted the doctor, two things shocked me. Number one, I didn't know who the doctor was. I remember reading a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I didn't know that he got called the doctor. The only, the doctor I'd ever heard of was Doctor Who on television when I was a kid. And it would come on the PBS, you know, when you only had four stations and one of them was PBS. You know, when all the good shows went off, then Doctor Who came on. And I, I knew then that it was time to turn the TV off and go outside and play. So I thought, you cannot be quoting Doctor Who. That, that, that just can't be. Well, they weren't. They were quoting Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so they would just call him the doctor. So that shocked me. It took me a minute to figure out who in the world are you talking about? But second, another shocking thing was when they quoted, the doctor said, that was the end of the conversation. Uh, whether or not they agreed with the doctor's statement, they felt it was inappropriate to argue. And so if you could quote the doctor among the evangelicals 20, 30 years ago, um, it, it kind of shut the argument down. That was the authoritative statement. So I, I thought, who is this doctor? Well, Lloyd-Jones. And what I saw, other than that strangeness, and we'll talk about that because there is a danger there when we admire someone. So I want us to hit the dangers in a minute. But what I saw that was beneficial was, and by far, that, that was 99%. I saw men and women in their 60s, 70s, who were college age when Lloyd-Jones was preaching. And they, especially in London, they would be at the University of London and, and they would go then, they would hear that this Welshman is preaching. So they'd go hear this Welshman preach. He preached in English and Welsh. Sometimes he preached in Welsh on the BBC. So he, they would go and hear him in the city of London. And that church became just like the pulpit for the UK. And so many of our friends personal friends at that church were converted under Lloyd-Jones preaching. And then their view of what a Christian was, uh, what doctrine is, what, what, what use is Christian history and the study of theology, what is a man? All of that was fashioned around Lloyd-Jones' extraordinary influence for decades. So for example, we would see men 
uh, in, in their homes, they would invite us over, you know, after church and we'd have lunch with the family in the church. And I would be amazed to see that the men would be very servant-like. Uh, they were genuinely helpful to their wives. Uh, they would grab up the dishes and do some cleaning. They would make tea for us while we were waiting on lunch. Uh, and then when we had conversations, their conversation was gracious. It, so it wasn't ranting against the, their government. It wasn't ranting against the liberals down the road or the non-evangelicals, as the British tend to use evangelical, non-evangelical as their terms. Uh, they, their conversation, even when it had to be critical, was, was very humble, firm about theology, not, not, not like movable, not mushy, firm, but humble, attractive. And I remember hearing a man talking to his son behind me in, in the church where we attended. And the son said something like, dad, where is the story of Jesus and such and such, some miracle? And the dad said, well, you can find that in Luke chapter such and such and Matthew chapter such and such, but it's also over in Mark. And I thought that dad didn't pull out his phone and pull up Logos software. He just knew. When we visited their homes, at that time, uh, VHS tapes were going out and DVD was in. So we would walk into people's homes and there would be a bookshelf. Well, you know, that's not shocking. But what was shocking was it wasn't full of DVDs. It was full of books by Banner of Truth uh, that were history books and theology books and biographies and, you know, sermon, collections of sermons of different people. And it was just so, such an oasis for me spiritually to be among the people. And the human instrument that God used underneath all of that, as well as the, the pastor of that church, but it wasn't just at that church, uh, but the human instrument was Lloyd-Jones, his continual influence um, in, in the sense of driving home the fact that the living God taking his word through, the, through it being preached to a group of people as they gather, that God's word in the hands of the spirit of God was all we need. We didn't need to add any other bells and whistles. And he, in fact, when he first came to Wales, he removed a lot of what we would consider um, maybe essential, uh, what the American church would think of as essential elements, you know, a big choir, a lot of fun, fancy programs. And Lloyd-Jones dismantled all of that mm -hmm. and stripped it back to the essentials. And the folks were quite shocked, but the Lord moved in such a wonderful way that many of the elders in the church were converted in, in the Welsh church there. And then you know, and then it spread through the community at really what we would consider what the British people called a gentle visitation. Uh, what Americans would say is a, a real revival. Uh, so we saw the continuation of that influence 30 years, 20, well, 20 years later, and it was still so vibrant. One of my favorite accounts of uh, Lloyd-Jones uh, that was told to me by a man that was there when the account occurred is uh, it's from the pastor that was there, Vernon Hyam. Vernon Hyam was very ill and had to be hospitalized frequently, you know, through his thirties and forties and fifties. He had um, um, uh, some type of lung issue 
uh, that was so extreme that he couldn't breathe and uh, his family would be called in from, from all around Wales to say, say goodbye to your father. He won't live through the night. And then he would live through the night. Uh, for years, he preached with an oxygen, cha- oxygen tank near him in the pulpit. Uh, and he couldn't do visitation because of the weakness. And uh, the Lord did, he feels very clearly, heal him. And that had to do a lot with Lloyd-Jones praying with him about that. But that's another story. But my favorite Lloyd-Jones account is when Vernon Heim was in the hospital. Now, you know, they had wards. I think they still do have wards in the British hospital. So there would be one big room with maybe eight beds. And all separated uh, by like and, curtains. And like right? have like a little curtain separating them at night or whatever. So in the daytime, you might be able to see all the people in the same room. Um, Vernon Hyam was there and Lloyd-Jones drove over to see him. And he walked in with his black overcoat, which he always seemed to wear. And he sat beside him and just talked naturally to him, how he was doing, how was his, you know, how was his family, um, you know, a couple of spiritual questions perhaps. And then he would get up and he would pray with them and get up and leave. Uh, so just very natural. Um, Vernon Hyam said that the men that were in that room weren't all uh, the kind of men that he would have thought would be interested in what Lloyd-Jones had to say. One man, you know, basically spent all of his time reading kind of dirty uh, romance novels, but you know, that that's kind of a euphemism. It was more dirty than romance. So he would read these kind of trashy novels and his mouth would be pretty foul. And he was right next to, his bed was next to Vernon Heim. So he got to hear and see Lloyd-Jones a lot. So this man with a foul mouth and a foul mind said to uh, my pastor when he was there, when's that man coming back? And he said, well, which man? I've had a lot of men, you know, visit over the week. And he said, you know, and in Welsh, he said, Adin Glan, the clean man. So he said, the, the clean man, you know, the clean man. Well, I mean, everybody that went in there was cleaned up and dressed properly. They're Brits, you know, and he didn't understand at first, but he was talking about Lloyd-Jones. That foul-mouthed, foul-minded man saw Lloyd-Jones just talking naturally to his friend, and he realized something is clean about that man. And that, I think, is so helpful for us today as we appreciate Lloyd-Jones' Reformed theology. Great. That's the bedrock. But we cannot stop short of that, um, of that expression of biblical theology, that we would be clean in a way that's attractive. Uh, and now, with all of that said, I now want to be like, okay, I want to listen to Lloyd-Jones. And I've been listening to Lloyd-Jones. In fact, the church now is reading Romans 6, uh, mm-hmm. one of our small groups. And, and I'm in that, ready to get back into it. But... <laughs> The big question, when you look at all of Lloyd-Jones and, and his legacy of the banner of truth, everything, it's a bit overwhelming. Um, so where would you suggest people start if they've never read Lloyd-Jones or listened to Lloyd-Jones and they just say, okay, where to go? By the way, uh, if you'll continue listening, I do ask this question to Greg Jones, and I think he gives a great answer. But John, I want to know what you where say to Where to start? That. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think with Lloyd-Jones, you know, you're kind of spoiled for choice. But my starting place with Lloyd-Jones was actually his series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And so I think it was probably by preaching through those 
that I was looking for resources. And so, you know, there's a commentary, Sermon on the Mount, two volumes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I start to read, and really it's his sermons. Uh, But he is so careful and he's so methodical and logical as he moves through a text that um, it really read like like a kind of a devotional uh, commentary. I I started there, but another, uh, I would say the second, the second resource of Lloyd-Jones that influenced me was his series of sermons in 1959-1960 on the 59 or 58-59 revival that occurred a century before in Wales, uh, in uh, Ireland, in the U.S., uh, so the 58 revival, when they when they talk about the 58, uh, they're talking about 1858, all right? So he used the centenary anniversary of that work of the Lord to talk to his people about what is real biblical revival. And uh, I forget how many sermons there are, maybe 24 or so, but I read the book some, and then I was painting a house uh, the exterior of a house one summer in South Mississippi. And so um, I remember um, as I painted, I just played uh, the, the, they were tapes back then. I just played all the tapes of that. And I, I just listened to the entire book. It is such a good introduction to a balanced and biblical perspective of the extraordinary seasons of grace that we call revival. And it gives history, good theology. It's just a safe and really stirring resource. Fantastic. Now, as with any of the blessings that the Lord gives us, they can be taken and used appropriately, or they can be used inappropriately. And there are dangers inherent in in listening to Lloyd-Jones. What are they? Yeah. and And maybe that sounds strange to people. You know, you recommend uh, listening to a person, and then you say, what are the dangers? Um, but everything outside of Scripture is imperfect, uh, you know, incomplete, perhaps. We, no matter how much we appreciate right. it. That doesn't mean that if you read a, a theological statement written by man today, that it's it's got errors, It, but it's going to be incomplete. There is no book that you can read and say, having read that book, Every truth that I need to know was included, and it was included in a way that was so perfectly balanced and interwoven with every other truth that there is no possibility uh, that I would um, be in any way uh, harmed or there is no lack in this book. Well, human books, uh, mere human books, don't carry that quality, and mere preachers don't carry that quality. So... One danger, of course, is that in let's 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 start with uh, the man. In admiring the man, and I do admire the man. And if you read his two-volume biography, which is a big go because um, uh, Ian Murray wrote it. Mm-hmm. Ian Murray is just the greatest for writing a Christian biography. He's oh, he's so so good. Yes, yeah, so interesting. So focuses on the right things. Is careful. So Ian Murray did a two-volume on Lloyd-Jones, and uh, that, that may be a bit daunting. I think there's a reduced version, but read the two-volume if you have time. Crossway has one as well that's, that I've heard is good. Right, I read yeah. It. The two-volume Banner of Truth, I think for the pastor, you just have to read the two-volume. I used to go to, when I was in Wales and I would show up at church, uh, the pastor, Vernon Heim, would sometimes corner me and say, how are you, John? You know, how's your, how's your studies? How are they going? And, and then he would say to me, have you read 
the two volumes on Lloyd-Jones. Uh, and I would say, uh, well, I've, I, I did one, but not the, I haven't read both. And he would, uh, jokingly, he had a great sense of humor. He would shake his head with terrible disappointment and say, shame on you. <laughs> um, have you read it since? Yes, I have. Okay. So that is, for a pastor, a great resource because it shows Lloyd-Jones facing, you know, 50 years ago, compromises, cultural compromises that we're facing today. Uh, not not some of the more edgy expressions of that, but the the deeper problems. Um, British evangelicalism, British religion is about 50 years ahead of us. Uh, British religion, not the evangelical churches necessarily, but kind of general run-of-the-mill religion in, the, in Britain is, I would say, 50 years ahead of us in a downward spiral. But we are certainly following some of their bad choices. Um, British evangelicalism at its best is, is a wonderful antidote to that. Lloyd-Jones, the man, I admire Lloyd-Jones, but you can admire a man in such a way that you, you, know, you, you imitate that man's idiosyncrasies rather than following him where he followed Christ. So one thing I did I would, I would, uh, I was preaching through Ephesians. This was the first couple years of the church here. And so it was a Wednesday evening series. Uh, and I, you know, as a preacher, I would be studying four or five days for this. And so I was so excited. So I had 50 minutes worth of tightly packed material. And that was probably too much. But what happened was when I finished my sermon, I would read Lloyd-Jones last so that I wasn't just, you know, reading him and re-preaching his sermon. So I would do all my work and then I would kind of use Lloyd-Jones like icing on the cake. But here was the problem. He was so good. I thought that is so good. I'll just kind of use uh, a, a chunk of it. And I would have my 50-minute sermon and then Lloyd-Jones would form my conclusion, which was a 20-minute re-preaching of Lloyd-Jones. So the other elder at the time, a man named Lanny Autry, who was always so gracious, never rebuked me. I, I think twice in my, twice in the maybe 20 years, 19 years that we worked together, did he ever pull me aside and kind of warn me. He was, he just was so gentle with me. He was an older man and uh, a, a very wise. He pulled me aside, and this was the one of those two times. He said, John, you're killing us on Wednesday night. You're preaching an hour and five minutes straight. That didn't include any other part of the service. And we're tired at the end of the day of work, and you're, you're not. You're excited. And he said, it's all good stuff, but why don't you divide it in half and do half this week, half next week? We can't focus for an hour and five minutes like that at the rate you're talking, etc." And that was a good reminder. But that was an abuse. I was using Lloyd-Jones' uh, sermon as my sermon, so to speak. Um, and that's always um, a possibility, you know, that we have when we admire people. Uh, another wrong use of Lloyd-Jones, other than the obvious one of allowing Lloyd-Jones' sermons to become your Bible or your Bible study. So instead of you doing the hard work on your knees with some good uh, study guides. I don't mean, you know, MacArthur's um, sermon series, which, you know, that's his commentaries are really sermons or Lloyd-Jones sermons or even Matthew Henry's. It, it, I mean, those are very sermonic. They, they've already done all the work for you. Those are great in their place, 
But first, you, a Bible, you know, a notebook, a couple of, you know, Bible dictionaries or whatever, and the Lord, and and you're wrestling with the text and you're digging your own well uh, and not just drinking out of the well that Lloyd-Jones drank from. And that's always dangerous. The better the preacher, the more tempting it is to make his sermons or his books a substitute for scripture without noticing. But let me give you one, I'll give you two other dangers. Um, well, let's, let's throw them together. One, last danger, comparing Lloyd-Jones to ourselves or comparing Lloyd-Jones to our preacher or our pastors. So to ourselves, if you're a pastor and you listen to Lloyd-Jones and then you, you ever have to listen to yourself, you know, maybe you, you've done some horrible crime and you have to listen to your own sermons, you know, it's penance. It, it sounds so horrible. And you think, why would anybody ever come to the church and preach? And, and it can be very paralyzing when you are aware of how poor you are at your main task. And Lloyd-Jones said about himself, he would not cross the street to listen to himself preach. And I don't think that was hyperbole. Uh, that's how he felt. We wouldn't agree with that, but we, we feel that way about ourselves. So if, if you're thinking of a dad leading, you know, family worship, a Sunday school teacher, um, you know, a small group leader, or one of the preachers at a church, it is easy to compare yourself to Lloyd-Jones and say, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, it's worthless. Why would anybody benefit from this? And, and you can be paralyzed by the awareness of your personal inadequacy. One time I was in Britain and I was eating with a man named Ernest Bevan. Ernest Bevan was a retired uh, school teacher. And more importantly, he was the elder. They only had one elder at this time. The, the, the elder of a vibrant little church right outside of Oxford, England called Banbury. Uh, but it was, it was right next to Oxford. So I was in dreamland when I got to preach at this little church. It was mostly university age, young people, and then some, you know, then some families. So uh, I preached there that morning and I felt that the Lord helped me and they were, they listened well. Uh, it was about 50 people. They had no pastor at the time and 50 people that are earnest. That's a pretty, that's good for a British evangelical church. So I went home with Mr. Bevan uh, because I was too far, to, you know, to drive all the way back to Wales. So I spent the afternoon with the elder. We had lunch together and then he started talking and he started talking about Lloyd-Jones because he had attended Westminster and uh, when he was young. And not only that, but he was with other men meeting with Lloyd-Jones, talking about the need to establish a new book public publishing company. Uh, and that became the banner of truth. So he was in that meeting and he was still in college. So he was the youngest guy there. Most of them were older preachers. And uh, someone, they, they, you know, they like Brits, they're very methodical and they're slow to make decisions. Not like Americans, we rush out and sometimes have to come back a little. So they, they had met many times and Lloyd-Jones felt that it was delayed too much. And so he said, well, we will make a start of it now. And he said, uh, they picked a name and then, he said to the men in the room, men, give all of your donations for the new publishing company. 
give it to Mr. Bevan. He is now our secretary treasurer. And he was a college kid. And so he just kind of froze and he was nominated by the doctor. So there was no arguing. Everybody got their wallets out and gave him the money. And he became the treasurer of the uh, Banner of Truth Trust. And so I was there with him and he was talking about Lloyd-Jones preaching. And it was so, he, he remembered those days, you know, 15, 20 years later with such gratitude for the Lord's work through Lloyd-Jones. And then I had to preach that night. So it, it was about four o'clock by that time. And let's say I had to preach at six. So I said to, to Mr. Bevan, Mr. Bevan, would you mind if I just go into a private room and have some time before I preach tonight? He said, you know, of course, go ahead. So I go into the room, I lock the door and lay out on the floor. And I, I just plead with the Lord and say, God, this man remembers Lloyd-Jones. And we, I've just heard three hours of, of anecdotes from the, the way you use this Lloyd-Jones. And I'm not that guy. And, you know, and, and I'm embarrassed to preach in front of him. But more importantly, God, if you could use me tonight in the sermon I want Ernest Bevan to be reminded that it, it wasn't Lloyd-Jones, it was you. And of course, Ernest Bevan knew that. So I preached that night and it was, I would say in the 30 years that I've been allowed to preach, it was one of the more noticeably assisted times. And it was like the Lord picked you up at the beginning of the sermon and chauffeur drove you through the sermon and dropped you off at the end. And, and, you know, and I don't mean to be silly mystical, but I even remember that night feeling like I, I like, I opened up my heart in, in preaching and it is like, it all poured out. And at the end, I said, the end, you know, amen. And, and it was like, it, it was almost as if you weren't aware of the normal labor of, you know, making sure I say this in the right way. It was just so free. After the sermon, a number of the college kids came up and had good spiritual questions. And uh, they were filtering past me, the people shaking, saying, thank you, thank you, you know. And um, I was about to go home. Uh, but Mr. Bevan was the last one in the line. And he's British, not, not Welsh, he's English. So he's not very emotional. He comes up to me and he holds out his hand and I, I went to shake it and say, well, thank you for letting me have lunch, you know, all those things. And this man in his seventies, who was a maths teacher, was crying and he shook my hand and said, choked up, he said, I almost forgot what it was like. And then he walked out. And so I was so grateful to the Lord that he helped me for Bevan, Mr. Bevan sank, you know. So it's an easy trap to read Lloyd-Jones, to hear these things, to, you know, to read any biography and think, well, what use is there for me to even try? Because I'm, I'm nowhere like that. And well, neither were they, you know, it, it was the Lord. Um, last danger, comparing your pastor to Lloyd-Jones. You listen to Lloyd-Jones and the Lord gave him extraordinary gifts, but he didn't have every gift. He wasn't necessarily the best pastor. Perhaps he wasn't necessarily, you know, I don't know. I don't want to give a, a list of perhaps. We know the areas he was strong, but I wasn't in his church year after year. I don't know the weaknesses of that church. Um, it never really, Lloyd-Jones never really led that church to rethink what a church is so much. You know, it, it remained kind of a preaching station. 
So it was, it was large, number of, a few thousand. And, you know, as for everyone really being shepherded, I don't know that that was really the case. It, it was more of a, of a, it was more of a place that people went to hear the truth preached with great blessing. And so it was a great blessing, but it's not the model for every church. And, and there would have been weaknesses and Lloyd-Jones had weaknesses. So all we know is the very best of Lloyd-Jones. It's not fair to compare that to your pastor and say, well, you don't preach like Lloyd-Jones. You know, I mean, we have had people leave little New Albany church because they said, I don't preach like um, John MacArthur. And I said, well, if that's your, you know, if that's what you're looking for, you probably should leave because I, I, I can't preach like John MacArthur. So to compare your pastor to Lloyd-Jones and to say, well, I'm not getting anything from you, but when I listen to this, this British guy, well, I, you know, it's so helpful uh, that if your pastor is a genuine, earnest pastor with a lot of imperfections and weaknesses, but he is an earnest man, earnest for the Lord, then you should be patient. You can give him Lloyd-Jones books. You can give him books that Lloyd-Jones read. But even those, you have to give sparingly. Pastors don't have time to read a library that you give them. And they don't have time to, to listen to every sermon or podcast that you send them, uh, you know, the link to. Uh, people do that to me, and I rarely have time to do it. So I, I tell them, I probably won't listen to this, and it kind of hurts their feelings. But you, you want to be patient. Pray for your pastor and give him time. Uh, be a help. Lloyd-Jones had men who helped him be a help to your pastor. He will not become Lloyd-Jones, but he can become the man that God has designed him to be. And that is the man that God has chosen for that church. So that is the best man. And so you want your pastor to become the most Christ-like version of himself that is humanly possible in this life. You don't want him to become Lloyd-Jones. And so be patient. John, I'm going to stop you right there. There's a, one that's a fantastic place to stop. Thinking of not just the benefits, why we want to listen to Lloyd-Jones, why we love the MLJ Trust, but also some of the dangers just simply to be aware of. Uh, how to pray for your pastor, I think is wonderful. But the reality is there's a whole interview uh, that calls this discussion. We wanted to give a little context. We wanted to give a little of your personal connection uh, to Lloyd-Jones there, how we've benefited from him, and we've taken up the entire time of the podcast. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop the podcast this week uh, right here, and next week um, we will actually get to the interview with Greg Jones. So now everybody knows your real job. That's uh, you're You're not really content director or... A producer, you are John Stopper. That's it. Like silencer. Hey, there has to be a somebody. Mute button. Yeah, a mute there button. we go. I'm the mute yeah. button. Okay. I'll take that. All right. <laughs> we'll see y'all next week. <laughs> <laughs>